good to see you this morning. I know many of you who are students or maybe teachers, administrators have survived the first week of school, so congratulations. Uh, maybe you're feeling a little bit weary this morning, so hopefully the Word of God can encourage you. Or maybe you had a great week, and in that way I hope the Word of God can encourage you also. Uh, wherever you are in your journey, we are glad you're here with us this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to James chapter 5. This morning we'll be in James 5, verses 7 through 12. If you've been with us for a while, you know that we're making our way through a series on the book of James. And it's been a great book so far. I certainly think that today's passage will be encouraging as well. We'd love to take books of the Bible here and preach to them verse by verse because we want the Word of God to set the agenda. And so this morning that means we're in James 5, 7 to 12. Let me pray, and then we'll get to it. Father, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to be in your Word together. And Lord, we'd pray that you would encourage us through your Word. I suspect that there are some in this room who are weary, and maybe not just because it's been the first week of school, but maybe because life circumstances have just been hard. And so I pray that you would encourage them through your word in their weariness this morning. Maybe others have had a great week or had a great stretch here, and so I pray that this morning your word would remind them that every good gift is from above and that they would have a heart full of gratitude. Or maybe there's just a lot of confusion going on in life for some, and I just pray that you would speak into their life through your word this morning. Whatever the case may be, whatever baggage we may bring with us, we pray that your word would speak to us loudly and clearly this morning. That we would leave here encouraged, challenged, convicted, with the desire to live more for your glory. Oh God, we pray that you'd be gracious to us this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So a little over a week from now, Tanya and I will celebrate our 20th wedding anniversary. Now, I know in the big scope of wedding anniversaries, the 20th anniversary is not necessarily a gigantic one. There are many, many couples over the years have reached that 20-year milestone, including many of you in this room. And in fact, some of you have far surpassed that milestone. I know of at least two couples in this church who've been married over 65 years, which is amazing. So I understand that our 20th wedding anniversary is a small achievement in the grand scale of wedding anniversary achievements. But having said that, it still feels like a big deal to me because 20 years is a long time. And our journey over these last 20 years has been filled with some amazing highs and incredible lows. And yet the grace of God has sustained us, has sustained us, sustained us through it all. And with utmost sincerity, I can say that I love my wife now more than I did on our wedding day. So while I understand that 20 is not necessarily a huge deal, I think it's traditionally known as the porcelain anniversary, which, let's be honest, is not as cool as the silver or gold or diamond anniversary. But nevertheless, 20 still feels significant. And because we're approaching that number, and because we've also recently attended a wedding, I found myself in recent days reminiscing more and more about our wedding day. And as I've been reflecting on that day, one of the things I've thought back with fondness about is the excitement we had leading up to that day. Tony and I were engaged at the end of April 2003 and married just four short months later. Those four months of anticipation were incredibly exciting. It would be an overstatement to say that everything we did between April and August was centered on that one day, but it certainly felt that way. We planned the ceremony, we planned the reception, we went through premarital counseling, Tanya found a dress, I found a tuxedo to rent. We re even reoriented our diet and our exercise regime to make sure we were ready for that day. For a period of time, seemingly everything we did was centered on that one day on the calendar. Now we still lived a normal life, we went to work, we went to classes, all the things that we needed to do to live a normal life we continued to do. But in the back of our minds, that one day was always on the horizon. I feel confident saying that there was not a day between our engagement and our wedding that I did not think about that coming day. And for good reason, marriage is a huge commitment and a gigantic blessing, and thus the wedding day as the avenue to, to a marriage is an enormously significant day. 
We always tell our kids that the most important decision that they'll make in their life is whether they decide to follow Christ. But perhaps the second most important decision is will they marry? And if so, who will they marry? Because who you marry sets a trajectory for the rest of your life. And so if you're getting married then, it's only natural that that day, the wedding day, would be on the forefront of your mind. Because of the significance of marriage, a wedding day is a huge thing. But as important as the wedding day is, I would argue there's another day on the coming calendar that makes even our wedding day seem small and insignificant in comparison. And yet, oddly enough, it seems to me that we rarely talk about that day. And we often fail to take that day into account as it relates to our daily living. I'm talking, of course, about the day that Jesus will return. The New Testament talks regularly and frequently about the coming return of Christ. In fact, I saw one estimate this week that there are, that there are 318 references in the New Testament to the coming day of the Lord. Roughly one of every 25 verses from Matthew to Revelation mentions the coming day of Christ. And the vast majority of those verses are mentioned in the context of a charge to live differently in light of Jesus' coming return. In other words, in the same way that a coming wedding day occupies our calendar and changes our thinking and our actions, the coming day of Christ should do the same thing. In fact, the coming day of Christ should loom over everything on a much larger scale because the coming return of Christ dwarfs the significance of even our wedding day. The coming day of Christ should occupy our calendar. It should impact our thinking, our living, and the way that we see the world around us. In today's passage, James reminds us of the significance of that day. In James 5, 7-12, James turns his attention to the coming day of the Lord, to the return of Jesus Christ, and in doing so, he pleads with us to put that day on our calendar, to live differently, to think differently, because that day is coming. So my prayer this morning is that we would do just that. In the same way that a future bride or groom sees everything through the lens of their coming wedding day, I pray that we would learn to see everything through the lens of the coming day of Jesus Christ. And that because we see everything through that lens, we would think and live differently. So I said, let's stand if you're able. Out of reverence for the reading of God's word, stand is just a simple way to remind ourselves the word of God is due our attention. So James 5, verse 7, 12 words will be on the screen here shortly. You can follow along as I read, or you can look along in your own Bibles, or if you need a pew Bible, there's usually one located on the chairs in front of you. James 5, verses 7 to 12 says this, beginning in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. It's the word of God, you may be seated. So in James 5, 7 to 12, the passage that we just read, it seems pretty obvious that the return of Christ is the focal point of James' instruction. Three times in just six verses, James mentions in one fashion or another the coming day of the Lord. The commands that James gives in this passage are obviously meant to flow from the reality of that coming day. So more than anything then, here's what I want you to take away from our passage this morning. Jesus is going to come again. And we should live differently in light of that reality. The coming return of Christ should inform everything we do. Now having said that, it's probably worth backing up for a second here to make sure that we're on the same page as it relates to the return of Christ or as it's sometimes referred to the second coming. 
Of course, this second coming implies a first coming. So maybe the place to start in talking about the coming day of the Lord is to talk about his first coming. As Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ took on flesh and came to this earth. Fully God and fully man, he was born in a manger. That's why we celebrate Christmas. He lived a perfect life. Then he died on the cross for our sins. After being crucified, he rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Hence the terminology of second coming. At his return, those who have not trusted in him, those who have not turned to Jesus Christ in saving faith, will be condemned, and they will face eternal punishment in hell. But those who have trusted in him will receive their new and glorious bodies when he returns, and they will reign with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. So when we talk about the coming day of the Lord, that's what we're talking about. To borrow language from our statement of faith, we are talking about the personal, bodily, and glorious return of Jesus Christ in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Now, as it relates to his return, I would suggest this, that we oftentimes have a tendency to lose the forest through the trees. By that, I mean we often end up focusing on the wrong things. Rather than simply focusing on the fact that Jesus will return and then living accordingly, we oftentimes get distracted and we start arguing about the nature and timing of his return. We get in debates about things like millenniums or raptures, and that becomes our focus rather than focusing on what Scripture typically focuses on, namely, that Jesus will return and therefore we should live differently. I'm not saying there's not a place for discussions about millenniums or raptures. There's certainly some verses that might lead us to have those discussions. There's a time and a place for that. I'm just simply pointing out that when the return of Christ is mentioned in the New Testament, it's almost always mentioned in the context of a call to live differently now in light of that coming return. And our passage today is no exception to that. In James 5, verses 7 to 12, James does not mention millenniums or raptures. He does not debate the exact timing or nature of Jesus' return. He simply reminds us Jesus is going to return. And then he implores us to live and think differently in light of his return. More specifically, in our passage today, James gives us some instructions as to how we should live in light of the coming return of Christ. He tells us to be patient. He encourages us to stand firm, and he urges us to guard our tongues. And so what I'd like to do in the rest of our time together this morning is simply walk through those things that James instructs the church to do. Those three instructions, be patient, stand firm, and guard your tongue. All right, so let's start with instruction number one this morning. Be patient. Be patient. In light of the coming return of Jesus Christ, be patient. We see this in verse 7 into the first part of verse 8. James says this, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? You also be patient. So in verse 7, we find the connecting word, therefore. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Now, we said this before, no doubt we'll say it again. When you see a therefore in Scripture, you have to ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? In this case, I think James wants us to see that what he's saying in verse 7 is, to, is connected to what comes right before it in verses 1 to 6. You may recall in last week's passage, James 5, verses 1 to 6, that James warned of a coming judgment that is going to fall on non-believers, and specifically rich non-believers who have not lived for the glory of Christ. The rich non-believers that James condemned in verses 1 to 6 were storing up treasure on earth. They were living lives of self-indulgence and luxury, and perhaps most notably for our passage today, they were also using their wealth and power to oppress and defraud others, including likely even Christians. As we said last week, the condemnation of the rich in James 5, 1 to 6, was likely meant to be a warning to us as believers as to how we should think about wealth and money. But as we also said last week, it was also meant to be an encouragement to the church. 
Because the fact of the matter is that it was oftentimes the rich and the powerful who were persecuting the church in the early first century. And so James's condemnation of the non-believers, the rich who were oppressing and defrauding and persecuting, was meant to be a reminder that the church did not need to envy the rich or be afraid of them. Because eventually the wicked rich would face God's judgment. It seems that theme of God's coming judgment is then the theme that carries forward to our passage today. Essentially what I think James is saying in verse 7 is this. He's saying, believers, I know you're facing suffering and persecution now. And I know that the rich and powerful are getting away with their wicked schemes currently. I know that they're making your life miserable. But God's justice is coming. Therefore, be patient. You don't need to become bitter. You don't need to seek vengeance. You don't need to lose your mind. You just need to trust God and wait for him to act. Because Jesus is coming. And when he comes, he will make all things right. So the message of verse 7, then, I think is simply this. Be patient because the story's not done. Jesus will come again. And when he comes, he will bring with him justice. And I would argue that this message of verse 7 is just as relevant today as it was when James first said it. Listen, I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to get discouraged by the current state of the world. When I read or hear things about the human trafficking that takes place every single day on this planet, including the trafficking of children for sex purposes, when I read about targeted attacks on Christians in countries like Nigeria or North Korea or Pakistan, when I see the corruption that's pervasive not only in our government but in governments around the world, it makes me sick to my stomach. It makes me ask the question sometimes, why is this world so broken? Why do the wicked continue to flourish? Why does life have to be so hard here? Well, James's answer to that question, or maybe more accurately, his encouragement in light of those questions, I think would be this. Things won't always be this way. When Jesus comes again, he will restore that which is broken. He will execute justice on the wicked. He will make all things right. But he hasn't come yet. He's not at his second coming. And so we have to be patient. And to illustrate our need for patience, James, again, uses an agricultural analogy. In verse 7, he talks about how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. The farmer cultivates the soil, no doubt they plant the seed, but then they have to wait. They wait for the rain to come at the right time. They wait for the seed to grow in the way that it's supposed to grow. Now to be sure, there are things that a farmer can do to help a crop grow. They can tend to the weeds, they can try to remove obstacles to growth. But at the end of the day, even in today's modern world with so much technology, there is a lot that is out of farmer's control, which any farmer in this room could tell you. Farming is still, even today, an exercise in patience. You plant and then you wait. And that's challenging because we like to have results that are instantaneous. We want immediate evidence that things are working. Waiting is hard. And waiting is not just hard as it relates to farming. It's hard in almost every area of life. Whatever area it is, we don't like waiting. We want things to happen now. I would say that parenting is another example where patience is required. Before we had kids, or right when we were starting to have kids, Tony and I read multiple books on parenting from a Christian perspective. I'm glad that we did because I think we learned some things that have been really helpful for us over the years. But I'll admit that I think my perspective about parenting was slightly skewed from reading those books too. There's a part of me that would read those books and think to myself, well, if we just do the right things, our kids will be amazing and it will be instantaneous. If we just have regular family devotions together, and we discipline our kids and point them to Christ, we take them to church, surround them with other believers, if we live out our faith ourselves as parents, 
then our kids will probably be leading Bible studies by the time they're in kindergarten. They'll probably be reading the New Testament in Greek by the time they're eight. They will probably be pretty much perfect. But parenting doesn't work that way, does it? Now, we still try to do all those things as a family. But like farming, parenting is an exercise in patience. You sow the seed, in this case, spiritual seed, and then you wait. Now, again, like farming, there are things you can do to tend to the seed, but growth comes from God. And so a lot of times you're just left to wait. You have to be patient. Now, the difference between parenting and the coming of Christ or farming and the coming of Christ is that both parenting and farming carry some uncertainty, whereas the coming of Christ is a done deal. In both parenting and farming, you can be patient, and sometimes the results never come about. Sometimes the seed never comes up the way you want it to, whether it be physical seed in the soil or, physical or, so or spiritual seed in the heart. But the coming of Christ, on the other hand, is absolutely certain. And so as it relates to the coming of Christ, we can be confident that our patience will be rewarded. Yes, life is hard now, as many of you can testify to. And yes, this world is messed up, as we can all testify to. And yes, Christians often face increased difficulty, but it won't always be that way. When Jesus returns, he will fix that which is broken. He will carry out justice on the wicked. He will restore that which the locust has eaten. But until that day comes, we have to be patient. And to be clear, we're not sure how long we have to be patient. In verse 8, James talks about the coming of the Lord being at hand. In verse 9, he describes the judge standing at the door. Both of those verses would seem to indicate that the coming day of the Lord is near. But here we are some 2,000 years later, and Jesus still hasn't returned. So my question is, was James wrong? Or did he mean something else when he talked about the day of the Lord being at hand? To put my cards on the table, and this will not surprise you, I don't think James was wrong in saying what he did. When James uses the language of the day of the Lord being at hand, I don't think he's suggesting that the day of the Lord will come right now or that he even knows the time frame where it will happen. Rather, I think James is simply using language that flex, reflects the reality that after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, the next thing on the calendar is the return of Christ. And therefore, his return is near. It could come at any moment. We're living in the last days. As we said last week, the last days is the period between Jesus' first coming and his second. But when that will come is a bit of a mystery. As Peter reminded in 2 Peter 3, the passage Jim read earlier, God's perspective on time is quite different than our perspective. As Peter tells us in that chapter, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So when Jesus tells us in Revelation 22, he's coming soon, or in James hints here that Jesus' return is near, I think they mean something slightly different than what typically comes in our mind when we think of soon or near. Jesus' return, is, Jesus' return is near in the sense that it's the next thing on the calendar and it could happen at any moment. We just don't know when that moment is. But what we do know with certainty is that he's going to return. So we need to be ready, but we also need to be patient. To use the farming analogy, the seed is already in the ground, but until it pops up, we're in waiting mode. When Jesus returns, God will make all things right, but in the meantime, we have to wait and be patient. Listen, I know some of you in this room right now are going through really hard things. I know others of you have gone through really hard things in the past. And in those moments, perhaps you wondered, where is God? Or where was God? Why didn't he do something? Why doesn't he do something? Why doesn't he intervene? I think the biblical answer to that question is that he did intervene by sending his son to die on the cross for our sins so that we could have the hope of forgiveness of sins and peace with God in eternity. 
And he will intervene again when he returns. And when he does so, he will make all things new. We just have to wait and be patient and trust that he will keep his word. So this is instruction number one in light of Jesus' coming return. Be patient. But that's not the only instruction that James gives in this passage. He also encourages us to stand firm. Stand firm. This is verse 8. It says this, You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So in verse 7, James gives instruction to his brothers and sisters in Christ. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Now in verse 8, he gives another instruction. Not only are they to be patient, but they are to establish their hearts in the Lord. Or some translations would say they need to stand firm. The idea here in verse 8 is that we're going to have to stand our ground and hold on to our faith in the midst of difficulties and trials. We're going to have to establish our hearts in the sense that we are going to have to plant our anchor in the hope of Jesus Christ. We're going to have to be steadfast in the midst of temptation and persecution and brokenness. In other words, our patience is going to be less like the patience needed when getting a haircut, which doesn't hurt, and more like the patience needed when someone's digging a huge splinter out of your finger, which can hurt quite a bit. We're not waiting patiently at the beach for the sun to come out so we can go frolic in the ocean waves. No, we're waiting patiently on the battlefield for help to arrive. But in the meantime, there are death and bullets all around us. In other words, our patience is not passive. We must stand firm as we wait. And to encourage us to that end, to that end James uses a couple of illustrations here. In verses 10 to 11, he points us to both the Old Testament prophets and to the person Job to encourage us to be steadfast. Look first at the reference to the Old Testament prophets in verse 10. He says this, And as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now maybe you're already aware of this, but the job of being an Old Testament prophet was not always an easy job. Sometimes it was just plain miserable. Elijah suffered at the hands of King Ahab. Jeremiah seemed to suffer at the hands of everyone. And at least some church traditions would suggest that Isaiah met his death when he was sawn in two. Put it this way then, while some modern preachers slash hucksters seem to be convinced that preaching means you should drive a Bentley and fly a private jet, that was not the experience of the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets spoke in the name of the Lord, and oftentimes because they spoke in the name of the Lord, they suffered. But they persevered, they stood firm, they remained patient, believing God would one day make things right. The same could be said of Job. We see reference to him in verse 11. Behold, We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now to be sure, Job was not a perfect sufferer. And the fact that he's mentioned here is actually really encouraging to me because Job was a mess sometimes. At times he complained a little bit too much. At times he thought too highly of himself. But he never abandoned his faith in God. He held on, even if sometimes, as you read the book of Job, it seems like he was hanging on by a thread. And his story here is meant to encourage us. It's meant to encourage us because in Job's suffering, there was purpose. And in Job's suffering, God displayed himself to be merciful and compassionate in the end. In fact, I would argue the end of verse 11 is perhaps the key to this entire passage. So I want to read verse 11 again with special focus on the last sentence here. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I think the end of verse 11 gives us insight as to why we should be motivated to persevere and stand firm. We stand firm in our trials because we believe even in our trials, God has a purpose. And we stand firm even in our trials because ultimately we believe that God is good. 
As James says it in verse 11, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And I would argue that it's understanding His character, that He is good, that He is merciful, that He is compassionate, that ultimately sustains us in times of trouble. Listen, it's no secret that our family has been through some pretty serious trials the last four years. I know many of you have experienced many trials also, so we're not alone in this. But certainly it's been a hard four years for us. First with Dawson's health and then Tanya's, it's just been a difficult road. There have been a lot of tears, a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear, if I'm honest. And you would think that perhaps that would have led me or led us to the conclusion that God is distant and cold and uncaring. But I can testify and say the opposite has been true. Time and again, he has shown himself to be merciful and compassionate. If you want to know the truth, that is what has sustained us. It's understanding his character. Listen, I believe with all my heart that God is sovereign over every last thing that happens on this earth, including the sickness that has happened to my family. And without the doctrine of God's sovereignty, we would have been lost like a ship in the middle of the ocean. But I don't think it's been the doctrine of God's sovereignty that has been most key in sustaining us and keeping us standing in the middle of our trials. I think the key doctrine has been the doctrine of his goodness. The understanding that he is merciful and compassionate and kind and loving. This is what has kept us going. Now to be sure, and hear me clearly, his goodness must go hand in hand with his sovereignty or else his goodness is powerless. It's only his sovereignty that allows his goodness to be good news. But his understanding that his fundamental disposition is one of mercy and compassion, kindness. This is what keeps us standing even when the hurricane swirls around us. So how do we stand firm in our trials as we wait for Jesus to return? By remembering he has a purpose in our trials and more importantly by remembering that he is good. By the way, if you're wondering how do we know that he's good or if you're saying it doesn't feel like he's good, then let me just plead with you this morning to look to the cross. On the cross, Jesus demonstrated his mercy and compassion by dying for us while we are still sinners. Oh, and I pray that we would not take that mercy and compassion for granted, but rather we would see it as fuel to stand firm in our faith, that we would see it as an anchor of hope in a stormy sea. And if Jesus came to rescue us from our sin, if he came once, you can take it to the bank. He's coming again to finish what he started. Because this is who he is. He's merciful and compassionate. He will not tarry forever. He will come and he will make things right. And when he comes, for those of us who trusted in Christ, we will be with him forever. And again, it's an understanding of his character that makes that the good news that it is. The most exciting part of the new heavens and the new earth is that we will be with him. And being with him will be glorious because of who he is. He's merciful and compassionate. He's kind and gracious. He is good. So in light of the coming of the Lord, be patient, stand firm. And this third one's going to come a little bit out of left field. Guard your tongues. All right, here we go. Verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, just giving us context for verse 9. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Here's the verse, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Verse 12, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So I'm just going to be honest with you here. At the beginning of the week, I had no idea how verses 9 and specifically verse 12 connect to the rest of the passage. In verses 7 and 8, and in verses 10 to 11, you have this coherent theme, it would seem, of being patient, standing firm in light of the coming return of Christ. 
But then in verses 9 and 12, you have these seemingly random verses about not grumbling. And I think verse 12 is ultimately about being a person who tells the truth. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. You don't need to have these weird promises. I, I pinky swear. You don't need to do that. Just say, say what you mean. Tell the truth. All right, so what is the connection between verses 9 and 12 and the rest of the passage? Now, again, in the interest of transparency, I should tell you, I'm still not entirely sure how verse 9, especially verse 12, fit in the overall flow. But here's my best guess. Clearly, the tongue was a major issue of concern for James. He addresses it multiple times in this book. And it's not surprising that in the context of a discussion about suffering and being patient in the midst of suffering, or excuse me, about being patient in the midst of suffering, that James would return again to the theme of the tongue. Because let's be honest, in times of difficulty and suffering, our tongue is one of the easiest ways that we can sin. I mean, think about it this way. If the early church was facing suffering and difficulty, it's pretty easy to see how the church might have started grumbling against one another. If I have a hard day at work and come home, my attitude and speech towards my family, who had nothing to do with my hard day, can sometimes be marked by irritability and grumbling towards them. Now, it's easy to see how the same thing could have happened in the early church. As you face pressure from the outside, you can start to take it out on the people inside. Furthermore, if the poor in church were facing persecution in the, in the form of lawsuits regarding their land, you could see how they might have been tempted to stretch the tooth. Oh, yeah, we'll, we'll take care of this, or we'll pay you back, or whatever it is. And so James just says, no, just tell the truth. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now, we're not for sure that that's the context of verses 9 and 12, but whatever the context was, the inclusion of the command not to grumble and to tell the truth reminds us that living in light of Christ's return is not just an abstract thing. We're not just meant to be patient and stand firm in some sort of generic, meaningless way. We're meant to demonstrate our patience and steadfastness in real life, including the way we use our tongue. As verse 9 reminds us, on the day that Jesus returns, we too, even as Christians, will have to give an account to the judge. Now thankfully, if we're in Christ, we don't have to be afraid of his condemnation, but we will still give an account. So as we wait for the return of Christ, and as we attempt to stand firm in our faith, it's important that we actually live out our faith and that we do so in practical ways like watching our tongue. So a very practical piece of advice from this passage is simply this. If you're a grumbler, don't grumble, right? Remember God's provision. Remember that he's the one who ultimately provides. If you're a liar or a person who likes to stretch the truth, just let your yes be yes and your no, no be no. One of James's main concern in this book is that we would be undivided and loyal followers of Jesus. And one of the ways that we can demonstrate this undividedness, this loyalty, is by doing practical things like keeping watch on our tongues. Listen, if we're in Christ, we're not afraid of Christ's return. We long for it. But we also long to live in a way that reflects his kindness and his character. We long to live in a way so that when he returns, our actions will result in praise and glory and honor. So we avoid grumbling because we're content in God's provision. And we want others to see that we are trusting God. We avoid lying because our God is a God of truth and we want to communicate that to the world around us. In other words, as we think about the coming return of Christ, it motivates us to live out our faith in practical ways. We want to reflect his character to the world around us. We want to live in a way that brings honor and glory to him. So yes, we're patient as we wait for the return of Christ. And yes, we're attempting to stand firm in our faith, but we're also doing practical, practical things like guarding our tongues. Because here's the thing, all of life should be informed by the coming return of Jesus Christ. If engaged couples orient their entire lives around their coming wedding day, how much more should we orient our lives around an event that is infinitely more important? The king is coming, and we should live and think and act differently in light of that reality. 
The coming return of Christ should inform every last thing that we do. Let's pray. Father, we're just going to be honest and say that we recognize the brokenness of this world and it grieves us greatly. We do long for the day that Jesus returns and makes things right. But in the meantime, help us to be patient. Help us to stand firm. Help us to do practical things like guard our tongues. Lord, in other words, what we're praying is that everything we do on this earth would be marked by an understanding that one day Jesus is coming back. And we pray that we would live that way, that that day would be on our calendar, and that we would be motivated to live differently even today. Help us to live in light of the coming return of your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.